Hey guys, welcome to Content Candy's new, new show. It's kind of an old show. It's uh, Cinema Bias with myself, Video Drew, and Alex Mack. Please enjoy. Check us out wherever you can find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, what have you. Like and rate and leave a review. That's like a thing you can do on podcasts. And make sure to also check out patreon.com backslash video drew to find out ways that you can support this channel, which is growing. Okay, end of thing. great movie to actually do an opening dance to because it's great. this is this is 90 percent of the dancing in phantom of the paradise i i, yeah. I feel like i need to like wear like a really hippy dippy swingy dress like 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 kind of a slightly of a hipster dress like i want to wear your outfit but wear like yeah. really thick wooden clogs yeah i really <laughs> wanted to get a whole grill of metal teeth and then also a mask of metal and then also uh have a vocoder for a voice oh Guys, welcome to Cinema Bias. I'm Video Drew. This is Alex Mack. And more importantly, guys, this is our intro. And then I have the intro video queued up. Don't worry about it. so so psyched to be talking about this movie tonight alex i gotta tell you i i did kind of a messed up thing i'm gonna be honest cinema bias is usually a show where we take turns filling in each other's blind spots and occasionally we have guests on uh at, at patrons or whatever which you can do by signing up for a patreon or uh, also guys streamlabs are open just gonna hem that in there somewhere uh streamlabs.com backslash video drew uh but you can you know you can request a movie and me and alex will watch it and we will discuss it this week we have a guest on, and instead of just taking their suggestion, I was like, no, no, no. I have something that I want you to watch, and it's just like one of my favorite movies, and I know this person really likes musicals, but all the musicals that they had uh, suggested, we'd both seen. So I was like, I just called an audible. I was like, it's time to just watch Drew's favorite movie of all time. It's Phantom of the Paradise Week. Finally! <laughs> Yo, it's yeah. become... Honestly, this actually kind of triggered a Brian De Palma week for me personally. Brian I didn't vow to watch a whole bunch of his movies. I watched another one earlier today. Another what did you watch? I watched La Femme Nikita. Oh, nice. La Femme Nikita, that's a good one. Mm -hmm. uh, I would not suggest watching uh, his Bonfire of the Vanities. It's so bad that there was like an oral history. I mean, there was like a documentary about how bad it is. There's some Brian De Palma that's great. It's really great. And then there's some Brian De Palma that really misses the mark. But anyway, let's let's uh, invite on our very special guest uh, for this week. We have... Oh, it's not the doggies. No. They're it not is. the guests? No. Well, who are we having no. on? No. no. be nearly as cool as their little ones over there. as Topo and everything. Come I here, Topo. Come here. Okay, we have Chris Ingle joining us. Hey, Chris. Oh, my God. I can't beat the dogs. 
I don't know how to do to top that. Oh, yeah. hey, I mean, I'm sure like with the with, with beard and everything, you know, it's just as soft, right? Wait, but you know, he can be Chris. Hold on. <laughs> this is something Chris got me because uh, I'm a psycho. And no, <laughs> I don't want to get flagged on this channel, but it's things be prepared. What Drew doesn't tell you is I have a matching one right up here. So psyched. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I gave you briefly, uh, I gave everyone briefly the, the rundown. Uh, Chris, you suggested, I know you're a big musical fan. You suggested Chicago and Phantom and Les Mis. And we just happen to be big musical fans here as well. So we've seen all of them. So you, have you ever heard of Phantom of the Paradise before this? Nope. Did you know at all what you were getting into? No. Okay. I think there really should be, honestly, a subcategory somewhere of lesser-known musicals because this would be right up there. Oh, this and Apple and stuff? Yeah, no, I mean, it should go under, like, cult films, I guess. Like, this is definitely, like, a definition of a cult film. But I really am so interested in Chris's opinion on it because I feel like he is angry at me. So <laughs> what we're going to do here is we're going to talk real quickly about sort of our biases, uh, you know, about certain movies, why we've seen them, why we haven't. I mean, I know you're a big fan of musical, Chris. Uh, what, you know, had you, you said you never heard this movie, but are you a big fan of Brian De Palma? Have you seen a lot of 70s movies, uh, cult classics? De, Palma, or? De Palma's the kind of guy I was introduced to De Palma in The Untouchables. Oh, right. I loved The Untouchables. That's and then so uh, Black Dahlia, I liked Mission to Mars. So I was like, oh, it's Brian De, De Palma. Okay, cool. That's a very weird smattering of Brian De Palma. Uh, Mission to Mars, I, Untouchables, <laughs> and, and then, and then Carrie, of course, Carrie. Carrie, um, of course, right? Yeah. So no, I love Carrie. Carrie, I argue, is is one of the best films of the seventies. Oh, it absolutely is. He masters the split screen. He's like the master mm -hmm. of the split screen. So in my head, I'm thinking, okay, I know that Phantom of the Paradise is a horror musical. And I'm thinking, okay, Brian De Palma probably knows horror pretty well. So, all right, this will be something I'm not familiar with. And then I watched it. And, well, we'll get into your thoughts about it. But more importantly, we have a section now called, uh, tell us what this movie's about. We're going to give you, oh, wait, wait, no, so first, sorry, first, Alex, had you ever heard of this movie? Sorry, I forgot to go around in a circle. I'm a little ditzy. <laughs> Have you ever heard of this? No, I have not heard of this movie. I am also a big fan of musicals. A lot of my favorite films of all times. I mean, a lot of my favorite movies growing up were pretty consistently musicals. And I never really thought about the concept of indie musicals or cult movies in terms of musicals. And so I feel like watching this is definitely going to trigger a certain movie watching trend for me for the yeah. next too. I would put this in the same category almost like as Rocky Horror, like in that sort of thing where it's like yeah. just, or like, you know, Repo the Genetic Opera maybe even. Or just like so weird and it exists and you're like, that's a testament of time. Uh, I will say that for myself, um, uh, this movie was famously a flop, uh, but it has, it has triggered some really interesting things in history. Specifically, Baby Driver. Baby Driver is is entirely a product of this movie, and we will get into it. Hey, hey, stop it! If you notice, Swan is in Baby Driver. Um, Paul William has written Paul William, who is the main uh, one of the main characters. He's the evil guy in this, but he also wrote all the music. He's also very famous for writing the Rainbow Connection and most of the Muppets movies. 
uh, music. So that's why, if you've noticed, a lot of this music sounds like stuff you would hear on the Muppets, which was Eric's first point. Uh, he wrote a book about this called, I think it was called like Failing Upward or something, or it's about like how failure, which is what this movie was, can create these beautiful things in its aftermath by people who've been inspired by it. I was very inspired by Phantom of the Paradise. I saw it when I was in high school. I don't know how I found it. It seemed weird. It seemed right up my alley. And my very first tattoo I ever got was a phoenix on my back for, for Jessica Harper's phoenix. Uh, so yeah, so that's my bias. Okay, so that's real quick. Um, now I guess, yeah, let's put 60 seconds on the clock and get Chris, if you can, as to the best of your ability, tell us the plot of this movie in 60 seconds. You think you can do it? I'm no Koi Jandrew, but I can give it a shot. Oh, wow. You have to be great at this. Hmm? Okay. Well, you have one minute on the clock to impress us with your movie plot prowess. Wait, wait. Alex, you got the clock? You got the clock? Cool. Okay. Yeah. Ready to go? Cool. Ready, set, go. Okay. You've got this guy, Swan. He's a movie produ a music producer, and he's opening up this brand new place called The Paradise, and he's looking for the next great sound for his guy, the Juicy Fruits, to open it up with. And then he meets this guy who is just a perfect sound, and he has him sign a contract that says, you'll be the next big thing, but he's not the, big, the next big thing because Swan stole the song uh, and then wants to get rid of this guy, but this guy doesn't know it, so he comes in and is going to talk to Swan, but Swan doesn't want to talk to him. But then he meets Phoenix. Phoenix is our femme of this movie. Uh, uh, then he gets kicked out, uh, and, and the uh, he's all pissed off and he gets uh, sent to jail and then he escapes from jail. But before he's in jail, he's made to get all metal teeth thanks to the Swan Corporation. And then he uh, escapes and uh, gets his head caught in a music press and is all deformed. Uh, and then years later, it's about to open up and he's now donned a costume and he's going to get his revenge, but he doesn't get his revenge because Swan makes him sign another contract, which is a Faustian deal. And now he has to make a perfect cantata for Phoenix, but it's not for Phoenix because it's actually for Swan and these other guys. And it's a really fucked up thing and there's lots of Faustian deals. <laughs> and time that wraps up. Our <laughs> Can I be honest? Great, great now, job. I, yeah, great I'm job. pretty impressed, all things considered. Drew, is there anything in particular you feel like our man Chris here missed? I mean, the second half was a little bit light on, on what was going on, but I think that he set up the first half perfectly. And I also think yeah, what's funny about this movie is it's not like a Phantom of the Opera story. It is uh, marginally Phantom of the Opera. Kind of? But it's mostly Faustian. It's, it's, it's mostly a Faustian story. Like, this story could have been called, like, Faust, you know, Faust 2000 or something. Because it's really all about the aggressively Phantom of the Opera. Well, there's a Phantom of the Opera overtake, which is like there's a guy living in the opera house. And he's, like, got this muse and whatever. But the no, idea no, of the I, no, I totally, no, I totally get it. But it's... Yeah. It's so clearly influenced. I think it's, 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 it's equally, you know? Yeah. It, it draws from three different sources, really. Faust, uh, the, the Legend of Faust, Phantom of the Opera by Gaston LaRue. Not Andrew Lloyd Webber, but, but the original LaRue. And then uh, the Portrait of Dorian Gray a little bit, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's got the Portrait of Dorian Gray thing. Uh, uh, so here's the second half. I mean, I, just to flesh it out a little bit more. So, right, he gets his head caught in a press. His vocoder is crushed. Uh, he's got these metal teeth, so he shows back up to get his revenge, but realizes the woman that he had fallen in love with uh, you know, who's going to be singing his music. Uh, so Swan makes him sign a contract. Swan's actually stealing the song. Swan has actually made a deal with the devil to remain eternally useful, uh, youthful and like get success by signing his name in blood. And he gets, uh, he gets Winslow to do the same. Uh, and then he steals all his songs and then he gets this guy beef, 
who is the best character in any movie ever that ever existed. This guy fucks. He fucks so hard that I can't stand it to do his songs. And so he kills beef. And then he realizes that Winslow, I mean, that uh, Swan is going to do a staged marriage to Phoenix, at which point he was going to kill her. So he he saves the day and does that. And I believe he dies. He does die, right? Yeah, he definitely dies. Everyone definitely dies except for Phoenix. Uh, mm -hmm. But it's really, the, the music is crazy because it's this, it's again, the guy who did the Muppets music, who again is also playing the bad guy. And I'm not sure if you guys have ever seen Paul Williams, but he looks like a Muppet. The dude looks I, like a human I, Muppet. I, I thought, like, looking at him, I was like, he looks super familiar. But he re reminds me, he, he looking at his face, he reminds me so much of... Capote? Capote. Yep. Uh, so and much so that when Capote was in Murder by Death... I mean, like, I, I mean, like um, um, what's his name? Um, oh, my gosh. he He's an actor that ended up playing Truman Capote in one of the movies. Oh, uh, what... Philip Seymour Hoffman or Jared Harris? No, the other one. The other one. Jared Harris. Yeah. Yes. Him. Yeah, you're so him portraying him. And so I was like, this feels so. Like there was this movie called Murder by Death that came out that was a spoof up on, um, like, uh, you know, sort of like a clue kind of spoof up of like murder mystery stories where there was like an Agatha Christie character, a Columbo character. They all go to a house. Uh, the main bad guy in that is Truman Capote in one of in his only role, like his only big role. And everyone thought it was Paul Williams because they look so much alike. Paul Williams had their history of being a villain for me. Growing up, I watched Batman the animated series. He's the voice of the penguin. No. Yeah, in the animated series, he's the penguin. Now, did you guys can you guys place him in Baby Driver? Because he is in Baby Driver. I to be completely honest, I've not seen Baby Drivers. Oh, that's gonna go on the list. He's the butcher. He's the butcher. I, yeah. he I He's the guy who, the guy <laughs> um, with the arms. He's the arms dealer. Yes. Who, uh, they, well, oh, so that's right. I well, watching this. I ended up. Oh, I I saw the movie Suspiria for the first time over Christmas. Yeah. And I was looking at that. I was looking at Phoenix. I was like, I know, I know you somewhere. I know you're like one Best of those. Some oh. horror movie, some like like somebody said, I was like, I know it's not Carrie, I know it's not that, and I was like, wait, what is that weird dancing one in Italy? Oh yeah, <laughs> I always used to confuse with um Indiana Jones lady. Uh, what's her name? Oh, the chick that played Marion. Karen Allen. Karen Allen. Karen Allen and Jessica Harper to me were like identical. The only difference was Jessica Harper was the singer one, so she was in a uh, Shock Treatment, which is a sequel to Rocky Horror. Hey, who's being weird? Uh, she was in, uh, she's yeah, Jessica Harper. She's great. She was also in the new Suspiria. My favorite thing about Jessica Harper in this movie is her dance skills. She gives this one song that is a version of Winslow's song that is, uh, you know, caught up in your wheeling dealing. And she does this dance break halfway through where she just struts across the stage going like this, yeah, like a chicken. <laughs> like, I don't know what they were on. I, w I need to read an oral history of this movie because I don't know what they were on, but like everyone in this movie acts bananas. It is glam rock, sort of. It, there's there's these idea of gender fluidity, like both in beef and like you know this this guy who's very presents as very butch on stage, but then backstage is very femme and and an, an incredible character. And the music also seems like sort of anachronistic, like it's supposed to be this dark, like edgy thing. And instead, we get these upbeat songs about carburetors and uh, all this stuff. 
So I'm interested. I, I have to say, the speaking of the music, for every song was a bop. I was like jamming out to it each and every, every one of the songs. Song. I was like, what what are the juicy fruits? What is yeah. this like a real band? Because I want to get an album. Well, uh, I think I think Chris Clark is in the comments. We we actually did a Phantom of the Paradise uh for his show once, and it was me, Mark Hoyek, and Rachel Silvestrini. Uh, and we we went through it all. I forget who it is, but that actually the the juicy fruits are a real they, some of the members are from a real famous band. Well, um, the, it was like, and also can't forget like the same three um, actors that are play the Juicy Fruits in the opening scene are also in play the like the Kiss. They they look like the they're all the band, the band, band the, during the actual performances. Well. Right, right. It's it's the house band, so yeah. it's all the same guys. Like it's like that's their like backup band, you know. Yeah. Car, I love how they take this one song. So Winslow creates this song, this opera, and he has this, you know, these things that are like, you know, these beautiful songs. And then as soon as as soon as Swan takes the music, he changes it into a song about carburetors and like surf culture. And it's so obviously a diss on the Beach Boys. It's like mm -hmm. carburetors, man. That's what life's all about. And you get this amazing split screen uh, sequence of a bomb being planted in a prop car. I'm just gonna go off forever unless we we bring me in there, a little bit. There, there's something to be said that I uh, that I really like about this house band as it goes through the film, mm -hmm. and that um, it really talks about how a studio is so quick to change a sound to based on what the people want. Oh and yeah. Like, so it goes from the Juicy Fruits, which is very I would say kind of early Beatles esque, kind of. I think it's uh, like Beach Boys, yeah. 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 Well, then it goes into the Beach Bums, which is very beach boys surfer and then into the undead which is that very kiss i uh, have like it's oh, a very right thing it's and almost I like really... going through the eras of music right because yeah. the first thing they start out with is almost the no it's like the crooners because they're like we'll remember you it's the juicy fruit. yeah it's like mm -hmm. almost like um it's almost like frankie valance in the beginning bit, yeah yeah uh, but the change, it, it, it makes sense to this. It's the only thing that made sense in the film to me is this uh, this take on, on music and labels. I really love, too, by the way, that the, the label, Swan's label is death. So, really funny story. Uh, it's because uh, I have a shirt that says, uh, Swan, I think it says Swan or Death Records. I, I have to remember exactly what the thing is. But basically, it was supposed to be Swan Records, I believe. But that was already a label, so they had to change it to Death Records uh for like all the publicity and stuff uh or maybe i got that backwards again chris clark fact check me on this but like it's a funny thing because like yeah they couldn't brand the, the record label in the movie the way they wanted to um chris you just said it's the only thing that made sense to you in this movie yeah e extrapolate <laughs> what didn't make sense to you everything else like um Okay, you gotta understand that my background, uh, I studied obviously musicals and performance very heavily, but I'm also a literature major. So uh -huh. I've studied Faust pretty thoroughly. I, I enjoy uh, the legend of Faust. And I was like, as I was going through this film, I'm like, where's the why? Where's the why in, in all of this that we're getting? Like, why is Swan doing what he's doing? And they try to explain it, but they don't really. He just comes off as a as a vain jerk that's all he yeah he wanted to be young forever yeah yeah and you know and then uh uh unfortunately poor poor winslow but what's his motivation into this the the feelings behind his music why is he pushing this so hard what what is in this and i don't just phoenix, phoenix. 
I, I don't buy. There is zero chemistry between those two. I mean, yeah, but he's zero. honestly. The thing is, I, I think that, he's pressed oh, on her the same way Phantom was pressed on Christine. You know? Well, that's something I, I actually agree with you there, um, Chris. That there, the idea that their the motivations, trying to figure out the motivations behind it, to me, everything was pretty darn self-explanatory. This whole idea, especially in that in this industry that's so image-prone, and his motivation is to stay young. Otherwise, he literally is going to commit suicide because he doesn't see the point in living if he's not going to stay young. I was like, yeah, that makes sense for his character. Wow. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, it is a bit sad, but I mean, that's just a, makes sense for his character. Like you said, with this Dorian Gray idea, but also there's this, I, we've watched several movies recently with like Ed Wood and um, Dolomite is my name, where these artists are like, I don't want, I have no desire to do anything else with my life. If I do anything else, I'm just going to die. I hate it. I just won't even consider it. And so, even if it means the demise of who of Up their work itself, yeah. Oh, yeah, overworking themselves and yeah. the and their and any kind of actual relationships they may have in the future, that's all they have. That's all they want to have the work and that passion that they have forward. So that was pretty cool. explanatory to me. So, so here's what's interesting I think that this movie always made sense to me as a kid because it was all like, yeah, this is what. This is like the push pull between artist and and industry, right? Like that Winslow represents this idea of pure art. And you can say that that's not even like the best thing to be someone who's uncompromising in their vision and someone who's like, I'd rather see my music burned than performed in a way that I don't like someone who's not willing to make any compromises versus like the other extreme of a studio label who is soulless and is about it just wants you for your money and is or your your talent and is going to suck you dry like Alex, like we saw in. Uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, like it's it's sort of like what they did to Chadwick. The Chad Chadwick, they're just like, yes, yeah, sign here, and all your shit belongs to us, and we can do whatever we want to it, and like make some white guys sing it. Like I can understand the Winslow impulse to be like, no, that's mine, and like I only want one person to sing it and to sing it a certain way, and otherwise See, I'm going to burn this place to the ground. If it is that way, then it really becomes again less an indoctrination on the movie or the the music or movie. Shoot. Bring it anyway, uh, in that industry, and it brings it back again to being a Faustian deal. How many artists in reality have signed away their lives for fame well, and fortune only exactly. to get nothing and destruction and you know everything in their lives? Um, so if that's the case, then yeah, it's it does a really good job of giving you the out overline of, of what uh the Faust story is about. In fact, I really love though that they, they do hit it on the head hard because. The name of his cantata is Faust. The entire yeah. time we're talking, it's Faust. I'm going to premiere Faust. Yeah. We're going to improve Faust. They say yeah. Faust more times than anything else. Um, <laughs> I want to. I want to talk a quick second about. Uh, you know, I think that's also true. I also also think it's the idea of uh, infamy and like getting credit for your work because there's a huge thing here where they just steal his music and send him to jail. They plant him in jail and they just send him away. And so there's an there's an, a thing here that's also regardless from Phoenix is really about revenge. Like people don't get to do that to you or like, you know, they do in this industry, people take credit, you know, they, they swindle you out that you don't read the fine print. And we see this again and again, especially in marginalized uh, disenfranchised groups, you know, like that this is the, we're just going to steal your music, steal your bop, steal your dance moves, give it to somebody else. Let them just sort of appropriate it. I mean, this is just the say girls, girls, this is like the most, 
you know, the oldest story in Hollywood, I think, is, or in the music industry, hey, I think is a Faustian story, ultimately. I, I feel like Faust is, is more so than Phantom or anything else. I think Faust is the story of the music industry. Like, it's selling out. It's the idea of, of commodifying your art. It's a taking of your soul. As an artist, mm -hmm. if, if my work was taken and then turned into a, a, a stage play or a movie and I got Dang. zero credit for it, I'd be pissed because that's my soul. I put myself into my work and to have it taken away and to not be recognized for that, whether you get paid or not. And bastardized into yeah. this horrible version. Yeah. He, uh, it's funny because um, Faust, he wants Faust only to be for Phoenix. He is a little obsessed in that regard. When um, he first hears it on the radio by, uh, I think they're still the Juicy Fruits at the time, uh, he hears the cantata sung by them. He goes eight shit and breaks out of prison. That's the first first major thing right there. Uh, yeah, I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine if like somebody planted drugs on you after like you know and stole your music and ruined your life, and then that you just hear your own music without any crap? I mean, God. It's horrifying, and that's before I, he finds a way. But Maybe. I did like that, by the way. He, he when he got first got kicked out of Swan's uh, place, Ow. and they, they, what, what's in your bag? Well, there's no what, what, and they take drugs out of their pocket, put yeah. it in his bag, and go, oh, look what we found in your bag. <laughs> like, wow, what? Oh yeah, what? yeah, yeah, and it's weird because he's um a white guy, so yeah. we just don't expect that happening. Like, I just feel like this movie also could be remade today in a lot of different ways. I mean, because it really is. It's talking about the idea of, like, being disenfranchised or, like, uh, being co-opted, being appropriated, your your music, your song, and your sound. But, like, this really is the story of, of the Black experience in the music industry, I feel like. I mean, I've always thought that that was sort of what this movie but was kind of about. We're talking about a musical, and we have to talk about the music. Yes. Can we? Can we? Yes. Can we? What is your favorite? Um, let's just change this. I'll change this for a second. What's your favorite song and why? And can you sing a couple bars? Because I will sing it for you. Uh, <laughs> okay, here's the thing I was going to say about the music. I can't remember one tune from this movie. Really? I, I really can't. The entire thing. <laughs> so I went through and I went through and I watched it twice. I did. Mm -hmm. I absolutely watched it twice just to be sure I saw what I thought I saw the first time. Um, and I can't, it's just, none of it is, okay. is catchy. None of it makes me go, oh, you, I'm going to be singing this. I got to have that soundtrack. Are you, none of it. In all due respect, are you fucking nuts? This, I, this is the catchy shit. You know how you can help remember it? Just think of the song Rainbow Connection and then you'll, you'll start to hear <laughs> tunes of it. Like, honestly, if you start seeing Rainbow Connection in your head, like you, or it's not easy being green. You will start hearing this music. <laughs> Seriously, because you're like, someday they'll find it. And you're like, carburetors, man. That's what life is all about. You're not wrong, but I, here's the thing. And, and part of it is who's singing it. That's um, absolutely true. It's, it's Phoenix. Like he touts Phoenix as this amazing, this is the voice. That's his Christine. All right, yeah. fine. When but she's she, not that great. No, she's not. And, and But I, I was talking to my writing partner about this film uh, to get a little insight. And really, this is at that point where um, from the 70s and, and from the, about the 60s and 70s, there was this real push for women to be out for altos. 
great singers were altos, they were lower. And you can hear it in her that she's much very much that that kind of carpenters, that she's an alto, tone. yeah. She's an alto. She, yeah, she's, she's an, an alto, alto. In, in, in a shock treatment, yeah. Yeah, but for me, like I was like, I I I am you're my ingenue. You're my I need something. But I grew up in the in the age of the soprano. Oh, oh, but somebody oh. remember when it comes to the attraction of the voice, it's more than the actual voice. It's the vibe. It's the overall character as well and what kind of emotion they're portraying through it. And so it's not just the vocal range, obviously. It's just how they're exuding that song. There's no emotion with her. That's her problem. Is there is no emotion with her. It's just, I want to be famous at all costs. Because he's, in all, and just saying, he's definitely projecting his feelings onto her, obviously. And he's making her seem so much better than she actually I mean, Yeah, I mean, look at her fucking dancing, man. Again, she takes a dance break during her audition to go like this. Like I will do it right now. I'm gonna move the camera up so you guys can see me dancing. This is like what she does. She goes the back spin. and forth like the spin, the spin that she does. Oh. She dances like my mom. She just does this back and forth across the stage. It's nuts. And you're like, that's the ingenue. And at first you get that like Swan's only keeping her around. Not because he thinks she's so great, but that's what's going to make him happy. That's what's going to make Winslow happy. Yeah, um, yeah it's I, I, not about her actual talent. It's just about everything that she represents to him. How about, okay, so, I mean, one of my favorite parts in this movie is how they play with the music. So we get this, uh, I'm not like a dirge, but we get this very like sad ballad that he wrote that's like, couldn't get to sleep last night, couldn't set things right with apologies or flowers. And he's just singing about like all these, you know, play out. And though I lost my soul, so I swell my soul for one love. He says, sell my soul. And then they change that song when they steal it and bastardize it. So they go, like, couldn't, couldn't sleep last night. Uh, what was it? I couldn't get to sleep last night. Motor wasn't running right. Like, my motor's barely running. Yeah, and it just becomes all about, like, the cars and the car culture. And you're like, oh, like, that's brutal. Like, that's just awful. It's the same melody, but it's, like, up-tempo, and it's about, like, it's literally just about cars. It's insane. And you, you get another version of that when uh, Winslow's voice gets changed. So he gets the ability to sing again when he's plugged into certain machines, and he thinks he's singing like normal, but in actuality, Swan is taking his voice and changing his voice into Swan's voice. So it sounds like Swan is singing. Which that that in of itself again is another really great indoctrination of of the music industry and how we're going to form you into what we want into mm -hmm. what you know and I love that I love that aspect of it I really do and actually if I would were to pick for me I think that was Faust's second reprise but yeah that was to me the best most emotional piece right there because you can see it in him yeah. Like he's in a moment where he's being taken advantage of. He has no other choice, but he's getting to produce his work. He's finally getting to make his music. Right. Yeah. So that. I buy that. I buy that moment. Uh, but you, and you see in uh, uh, Swan as he's playing with the dials and just uh, so today with auto tune and, and, and all this other technology, same thing. Uh, and that, that was, I, that I liked, I liked that. Tell me what you didn't like, because I, I want to get to this. Because like there does, you said it doesn't make any Phoenix. sense, but I want to hear like what what about it didn't work for you? Phoenix, the relationship between Phoenix and Phantom. Um, Why not? Because like that's always been like a one way thing. That's always going to be like a, a fucking stalker. Yeah, 
Yeah, it was. Uh, it was a little creepy, but in in this kind of film, in in these musicals, usually you are going to have the you're going to have the the female love interest, the ingenue, uh, and then you're going to have your your guy, whatever form that is. Uh, you know, Phantom. You mean the Raul, or you mean the Phantom? That's an like. interesting question. That you know, if we had done that movie, I would have been happy to have answered for you. Yeah. Um, well, sorry, we've all <laughs> seen that movie. Everyone has. But I'm just saying, um, like, is it is it because he, she doesn't have a real love interest? Like, she's just being played? Or I, I think her real love interest is herself. I, wow. Really? Can I make this on her? Yeah, it's her. It's her. You think I, I think something to remember as well is that for a few moments in this movie, he felt like he was her hero. And he really loved that feeling. Um especially as maybe it's, it's him being as a musician and maybe it's him being a guy where that doesn't come often. There was a few moments in this movie where he was helping her out when she asked him for help. And he felt in that moment, very heroic. When she yeah. When she, when she says that like during the, when she was almost assaulted during the casting couch situation and she ran out screaming, he was right there. And his first thought was like, Oh, did you tell him about my music? Not a great response. Yeah. That was kind of messed up. Hunk her. And so, He's also kind of doing a Reddit nice guy thing, though, where he's like, where he's, he's trying to get the credit by being like, oh, I wrote the music. And she's like, really? Like, shouldn't you be in there? And he's like, well, this is my stuff. Like, all his self-worth for her, like, what he considers his social capital or whatever is just based on the fact that he wrote the music. So, of course, that's going to be, like, the biggest thing for him. Not that he's necessarily, yeah, go ahead. Another thing, too, since this picture's up, I adore the costuming. Fucking I amazing! Really, I like the costume. Whoever came up with this costume is fucking genius. It's yes. just—it's so weird. I mean, everything really makes sense. This whole idea that he's a night owl, but also it's referencing the Phantom, and he kind of looks like Darth Vader. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing about him that's attractive. Uh, there—he's the, as a human being. Sorry, like when he was normal looking. He was a specifically looking like kind of weirdo. In fact, I feel like this is an improvement. I'm not sure if anyone else felt that way. Like I was like, that looks better. Yeah, kind looking, of at that, looking at that picture, I, I, it, it reminds me of, um, oh God, who is that? Uh, Marilyn, a little bit Marilyn Manson, just that kind so, of real strange creep factor, and it just it really gets. And I like it. I like this style. It's good now. Can I, can I ask a question? Did did Paul work for you as the bad guy of this movie? Uh, because here's the guy that's supposed to be young forever. This is the guy who's supposed to have made the deal with the devil to look this way forever and to be this captain of industry. Does this guy um, strike it for you? I hate him. And I don't like, not the. I hate the character, definitely. Like, he's an indulged, self-indulged, uh, a little bit of a sycophant. You know, like yeah. I, when he's, um, it, it's all about him when he is, is, uh, laying down with Phoenix and they're having their little makeout session mm -hmm. and he knows that Winslow is watching, he knows he's watching and he's just got this grin on his face. Like, yep. Yeah. Nine dude. It's all mine. And he knows it. And he plays that the entire film. Never once do you have any sympathy for him. Never once do you believe he has a redeeming quality. This guy has no, he's, he is a bad guy's bad guy. And yeah, normally, I agree with it. normally I want a little bit of sympathetic. Normally I want a little bit. This guy in terms of the Faustian deal works. This is wow. the guy who just makes the deal and he's getting all the upsides out of this. He's basically no both the devil 
and the Faust in the situation. Yeah, yeah. I guess, my, I guess my point is because he wrote the music, I get it. Like, and I, I love that he, you know, did all this. Does this look like someone who made a deal with the devil to remain eternally beautiful and youthful? Like, I love Paul Williams so much, but I feel like maybe if they had hired somebody else to be like the both kind of Raoul figure, if you were like, like to be somebody you can believe that seduced, yeah, to somebody that you believe that seduced her. Well, uh, I, I actually, I actually kind of believe it, and just not so much. Just he's definitely he's an unconventionally attractive man. Um, like forty-five in this. Yeah, I mean, he's he, you know, he's not the tall, dark, and handsome and usual image of masculinity that we're accustomed to in Hollywood. However, right, right, Alex, not, he's literally the opposite. He's exactly. Not, he's, yeah, he would not be what in this role today, do, or someone well, like him. Would what I do like about him in this role is that. He has an unwavering confidence, <laughs> no matter what he's talking about, his confidence, his attitude, he owns the room. And I yeah. think that action, regardless of who, who it's from, is very, very appealing. Attach that to this, like, create this really Yeah, there, yeah there's power. the scene with him and Phoenix. Yeah. And it's it's really has this um, not to mention obviously drugs are definitely involved. So it definitely alters the noggin in your. In I'm your, just saying, you made a deal yeah. with the devil to remain youthful, and this is what you get. You should go back to the devil and be like, oh, dude, no. No. Or, okay. Well, thing is, I honestly for for a split second, I I honestly thought, is this like a situation where he? It was like in the 1300s or something when he sold his <laughs> he's soul. He's aging really slowly. Yeah, and he and he's not so much aging slowly, but he was like at some point he was like that was his height and everything was like normal. At some no, point. he's not that old. He's like it, from, he was from like a, he's from like an earlier generation because we see him and he does look younger when he makes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember there was a scene where he's in the tub and it's only like a few years earlier, so I know it's not that big of a deal. But I, in my head, I keep thinking. Maybe he was like he. Maybe he's actually several hundred. He's several centuries years old. If, he's, if you're several centuries years, right? I mean, if, if but if you're several centuries near old, is that your goal? Because also, it's really interesting what his priorities are. His priorities are very much in line of the '70s priorities, or like this this sort of music industry priority. He doesn't have these aspirations to like you know, to rule the world or whatever. He's like, I just want to be like the biggest music producer and also get married uh, on stage and make everything a spectacle. Like it's very much of its time and he's very much a creature it's, of his time. Why Motivations, motivations and ambitions change. Yeah. Especially in this ever evolving, uh, especially ever evolving industry like that. And it, and I I could picture him in this situation definitely be like hey what's gonna get me more attention this week yeah no uh, and, and the ending to the film really kind of plays into that because it gets exactly what he wanted again that Faustian deal to where like everybody's watching him all the audience is playing into it and and I don't I mean, we're already spoiling a 30 40 year old movie something like that but um. 50. No, he gets stabbed in the end after after the the curse or the spell has been broken. Uh, he's stabbed, and then an audience member takes it and stabs him too, and they start passing him down the line, and other audience members are stabbing him. Well, and that's brilliant part of the show, and because like, we've seen it part of the show because we've exactly. seen it in the uh, beef stuff because they were going into the audience and taking stuff. I mean, it really. 
I hate to be this person to like try to sell you guys on a movie that clearly is just like one of my picadillos, but like there's just so much there. I feel like there's so much metaphor and context and subtext about what this movie is uh, or what it's trying to say about the music industry. I'm not sure if there's another movie that is about the music industry that isn't like that, that is this on the nose and does it in such an allegorical way. Like you mm -hmm. can do dream girls, you can do right. You can do any music, music industry movie and you get the same beats but this is like really as as done it as a fairy tale almost i really liked it overall i have to say again the music i, I love every song the opening song with the juicy fruits yeah we'll remember my head since I watched it really yeah i wake up i wake up sometimes absolutely. alex I wake up sometimes and just I'm singing that song. I will be in the middle of that song while I wake up. I'll be like, As you yeah, I'll just be like in the chorus of it where it's like, yeah. We'll remember you forever, Eddie, through the sacrifice for me. It's great. Well, it's, well, even in terms of its portrayal of the music industry, I think it's as satirical and ridiculous as it is. I feel like it's incredibly on point. It's I, I don't want the characters uh, or anything are realistic. But at the same time, a lot of the specific moments feel very genuine and based in reality. And I I find that quite endearing, those small moments quite endearing, especially especially with when you're adding these ridiculous characters that I love. The can only, we talk can we talk <laughs> since we mentioned oh, sorry, go ahead, Chris. I was gonna say the only other thing that got to me, and I'll chalk it up to the times. Uh, a little bit into the makeup, not necessarily the Phantom's design, but the the, the gory stuff isn't really that gory. I mean, at the, I thought oh, it's, no, it's Argento. Like, it's like it, it, it's, there are only like... two times really that the press, the Phantom when he's pressed, uh, the result of that which you see in the end of the film, and then uh, Swan when you see his face. I would have expected more. I well, wanted not, a little bit more of that. I think it was very much based in the movie. I think it was very much based in the Argento style yeah. of horror, which is like the reds and the blood look uh, oversaturated. It's, uh, it's all almost campy. So, like, uh, you know, it's not supposed it, to so clarify in that way. Okay. Like a lot of the, like, especially the, like the, the, really awful B horror movies of that time that are a lot of and a lot of them are kind of revered today is for being um especially the the really stupid gory ones where the red is much too red it's glowing yeah. like that it's a bright happen. red i mean but yeah. it, that's i mean that's a way to i mean i thought that was very reminiscent of a lot of the the body horror gore movies that were really, really popular at that time. People also were actively looking for that kind of uh, horror aspect in these movies. Well, and it's a horror musical comedy commentary. Like it's a very, it's, and I will tell you guys in a little bit about like the backstory about how big this movie was to fail and how it really, for Paul Williams, this ended his career in his mind. He didn't work again after this, like for years. And it wasn't until... I guess I'm getting into it now. It wasn't until uh, um, Edgar Wright came to him and was like, hey, uh, this movie inspired my everything. Edgar Wright cites Phantom of the Paradise as one of his major inspirations for becoming a filmmaker. And like, just sit on that for a second while I let these dogs out. Come on, come on. I, I mean, there's definitely something to be said about his about Williams's uh, musical future. 
what this yeah. sets forward. I mean, some of my favorite soundtracks are still they're, they're Muppet soundtracks. Muppet Christmas Carol, one of my favorite. He did it. He did Muppet. all those. Yeah, that, that, that's all him. Even even Princess Diaries too, which by the way he makes a cameo in Princess Diaries too as well. Some of <laughs> other place I recognized him from. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah, you're born by the fire. It's true yeah. wherever you find love. Yeah, I mean he's just yeah. the best. That's all him, and I I I really like Williams. I do. I like Williams' sound. I like what he has to offer. And as an actor, he's just one of those guys that's in there, and it seems like they're having a good time. And yeah. I love that. Absolutely. Look, look. If I would have, I would have cast him as somebody different. I love Paul Williams. Maybe I give him a small role doing something. Hell, I might have even given him Winslow, because like he kind of fits that model. Like he would have made a great Winslow. Um, but as this is supposed to be this like, you know, charismatic, like just, you know, mysterious, like, uh, you know, you can't take your eyes off him. You fall in love with him. I just didn't buy him as that person. And it was always the funniest part of the movie to me. But maybe that's part of the uh, maybe that's part of the thing. Maybe that's okay. What if hypothetically, maybe that's the point. Where uh, okay. we, like it's, we it's watch it looks it's no, just no, okay. well the thing is what where we watch it and we're like no clearly but they put it there and they're like yeah we see it but they do not that's the point that these characters do see the obvious flaws in this right he like made, that's part of the deal he made is that like yeah. we see him as as not that great of a looking guy or whatever but like we do see that scene where he's signing the contract to the devil originally and he looks more like a teeny bopper like somebody that would have been in partridge family and like mm -hmm. so his deal with the devil was to made that sort of like you know leo before leo got the way leo looks now like to remain that way but instead it sort of corrupted him it kind of golemized him and he's turned like from smeagol to Gollum. I think it's more the power than it is the looks. The power is drugging. Mm -hmm. And clearly this world has established that Swan is the big thing. His Swan Records is the big thing, and he's going to make people a big star, and they're looking forward to the paradise. So I think it's his power. That yeah, you're is, right, is because no one sees him until the end. Like, nobody, none of the public doesn't know what he looks like until the end. And even then, they think it's part of the show. Right, right. Yeah, but I'm saying, like... um. You're right, because like no one knows what Swan looks like. He remains in the shadows. It's his thing, but you only hear his voice. Like the public, like people being auditioned, unless you're one of the no girls. No cameras. Yeah, I've, that was something I missed the first time I watched it, was when he requests, no cameras, please. No cameras. Will you, yeah. Yeah, because um, that's also the thing. Like if you have like a deal with the devil, I just watched Death Becomes Her, but like you got to like hide out from public spotlight because people are going to be like, why didn't you age? Like that one lady with the, the locket. She just so happened to have a locket. Yeah. Wait, what do you mean Drew drops Lord of the Rings reference? What did I drop? Oh, Smeagol Gollum. Yeah. Yeah. My precious. Uh, I love... <laughs> we haven't gotten to my favorite part of this movie. Uh, let me pull up a picture of the best thing that's ever happened to film. Uh, I'm sure you guys can guess who it is. Why this guy is not super famous. Can you guys guess who I'm talking about? Beef? Is it beef? It's fucking beef. This is... This is my queen. This is my everything. He's my everything. He put oh, so much. Actually, you know who he reminded me of in like good ways was Meatloaf and Rocky Horror. Um, he reminds me of like my my guy that I went to prom with, and I was like really confused when he turned out to be gay, even though he made my prom dress. Yeah. Uh, I, I absolutely love it when he's in the shower and they do kind of the uh, psycho thing. Only it's yeah, a blunder. Like <laughs> 
Well, I also love his code switching, which is that when he's on stage, he's like butch. He's like life at last. And he's got he's got the glitter on, and so he's like glam rock, but he's being butch. Uh, and then when he's off camera, he's like you know totally missing and all these things. And yes, that doesn't really play that well for twenty twenty one. I do think it's. Yeah not unrealistic and i don't think it's an offensive portrayal i think it's actually commenting very much on the even how like other people in this industry have to pretend to be something they're not like he is fully himself as beef off camera he is a queen but when he's on stage he has to be this other thing yes. uh, and he's amazing and he's just uh i don't know how would you even describe him he's just the best thing that's ever fucking happened so so the, he, he, you know what? He's a really great actor. This guy, wonderful. Um, I recognize him. Uh, I'm also a huge Star Trek fan. Uh, this guy, Garrett Graham, uh, he later goes on to do a guest spot on Star Trek Voyager, and actually really? a really serious. He plays a Q. John Delancey is a Q. He also plays a Q, and it's a Q who wants to um, kill himself. And Qs are immortal. You're not supposed to be able to do that. So there's a, de a depth and deepness in a lot of the roles that he does. And I've never surprising. seen him in anything else. It's crazy. He, well, yeah. I was like, it's also funny you say that because Paul Williams also was in Star Trek. He was yeah. also in Voyager. Yeah. I remember um, that. One. Yeah, I have to agree with you. Also, it's he's definitely one of those characters that is, like you said, it, the way he he does, he's incredibly hyper masculine on stage, and him like singing, and he's being told to shriek over and over again and he's like have one of these bitches do it or something yeah. and, and i'm going to go visit my mother in ohio no he's like no bitch can sing it as well as you yeah then like yeah i think i've gone back and forth in my day since i loved this movie of being like oh this was like an offensive gay stereotype and then being like well no not necessarily because he's not somebody who's just like this mincing, prancing thing, and that's like the entirety of who he is. No, this guy has like layers. He's able to put on a performance. He knows who he, he just knows who he is on the inside, and he's, he's this guy. guy. He's a guy from Cincinnati who wants to visit his mom. Oh, yeah, that's right. He's going to Cincinnati to visit my mom, and then the guy just feeds him all the pills. Uh, and oh, then he goes it's out. Time for breakfast. That <laughs> the question. Remember the earlier uh, of down below it said, "What was your favorite line?" We kind of pass over that. It's yeah. time for breakfast, and he just dumps pills. Oh like, my god! Whoa! Like, maybe that's why this movie spoke so much to me as a kid because I was like, "Pills for breakfast?" No, I, no, no, I no. for a second thought, "What are they gonna give?" Like porridge, maybe some eggs and bacon. No, they give pills and like probably some sort of trank, like some sort of quaalude. <laughs> Sorry, not to like speculate. They're just trying to add their sense, trying to create a oh, much more sense of control over yeah, them. Yeah, it's a way to dope up the masses. Yeah, this poor weird. guy, this is how... Control. <laughs> you know what he is? He's the um, Carlotta of the story, of the Phantom Pair. In, in, in a good Carlotta? way, while Carlotta from Phantom was, was meant to be this prat mm -hmm. and this asshole, he's not exactly meant to be that way. No, he's not. He's he's actually a very sympathetic character. Like he's almost like the trap. He's the innocent of the story. That's why because he reminds me of Meatloaf in Rocky Horror. Oh, you're right. I can see that. Someone who else is hyper masculine, you know, who has a hyper masculine persona. And so I don't know. I've always felt that he is one of the best, one of the best uh performances I've seen in like one of these things ever. Um I, I gotta say, Drew, you're slowly, slowly changing my mind here in this really? conversation. Like, really, really. Oh, so I'm so happy to hear that. 
I, I do um, also want to take a moment to uh, really highlight something we haven't really touched on at all is how much fun the costumes are. Um, we did talk about we did talk we did talk about obviously Winslow and his transformation into a night owl version of Darth Vader. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but we didn't really talk about the costumes all that much for for anyone else. Now Phoenix, she's like a regular hippy dippy girl, very uh, very like you said with the carpenters kind of thing situation going on, mamas and papas. But in terms, like you said, with beef, with if we're talking about. Um, um uh winslow's transformation he's just a guy wearing jeans and like a white t-shirt and then how he his character evolves you also kind of notice he's getting a lot dirtier throughout the entire film and you notice his gradual ascent to wearing a lot darker clothes mm -hmm. uh there's literally a scene where he starts out with a white complete white outfit um at the prison and then he just gets dirty and then he he changes into dark, significantly darker clothes throughout. Um, just the all the stage costumes are so much fun. Yeah. Paul Williams' glasses, a little thing to me, but they are all, always either red or rose tinted. Always. Can, not not to take uh, you guys off subjects for a second, but I don't think I, I've really stated how strongly we would not have Scott Pilgrim versus the world if it wasn't for this movie. So much so that he's made his own mini documentary, Edgar Wright, about movies that changed my life, in which he states unequivocally that the biggest influence of Scott Pilgrim and his other works has been Phantom of the Paradise. And I feel like if you understand that Phantom of the Paradise through that lens, that, that sort of put a germ in his brain, that there'd be an ability to make a movie that is sort of genre bending in a way this is both a musical and a comedy and it, it sort of operates outside the laws of regular reality and yet we're immediately able to understand how this world works. Uh, and it's so strange and so brave that I feel like, yeah, I mean, how can you not love a movie that Edgar Wright said inspired his entire thing? I am have to go find that documentary to be honest. It's called, uh, let me see, I have it right here. Up, it's, uh, movies That Changed My Life. Driver, it's called Movies well. That Changed My Life by Edgar Wright. Phantom of the Paradise, and this is Spinal Tap. The two wow. movies. Yeah. And it kind of fit in a weird way together. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm trying to think more on it. There's like videos I can watch, I guess, but like, uh, and we won't play here, but I didn't do enough research in it. I knew that he was very inspired by it. I just don't, I, I just, my mind is trying to like figure it out. Okay, so Scott Pilgrim has the elements of music and like the bands off and like, you know, fighting for the girl and all this stuff and you know jason schwartzman is swan that's kind of it right like jason schwartzman's swan's character and the he's way like, he controls he's a music producer who controls uh, people is literally like with a chip in her head yep and he like buys out bands and turns them into soulless rock groups Mm -hmm. and yeah. I just like that whole line you know how long it took me to get all her boyfriends all of yeah. 10 minutes I love the part where he's like, hey, sorry about the whole league thing. He's like, I was in a really bad place. <laughs> so good. Yeah. I mean, I, this movie is just to me, if it can, if it has that experience on Edgar Wright, I feel like there's no way you can, you can say that this movie is worthless. However, it was worthless when it came out. It was considered trash. People hated mm -hmm. it. And it got Paul, saw, uh, Paul Williams out of like, like, uh, yeah. 
like Chris Clark has mentioned, he made a couple more songs after that. He still worked on Muppets, but he just, he considered this such a blow to his career. He considered it the worst mistake he ever made in his life. You know, Even Jim later in his career, he thought that? Sorry? Jim Even later in his career, he thought that? Yeah, he thought that until Edgar Wright showed up and was like, your movies have inspired me. Like, this movie inspired me. Jim uh, Henson chose him, not specifically because of this film, but Jim did talk about early on how he had saw this film. Um, and Jim was known for his... Wait, Henson? Yeah, Henson, yeah. Wait, was this uh, before Muppets? Holy this shit. This is before Muppets, yeah. I did not know years. that. Uh, Jim Henson was a big fan of the unconventional. Absolutely, because the man all was all about unconventional. Mm -hmm. And so he wanted a little bit of that, and he hired Williams, and and it was a huge success. Williams, I had no idea. Other look cute little factoids: Sissy Spacek is the set, uh, uh, the set oh. dresser for this film. What? Yeah, Sissy Spacek is the set dresser for this film. Oscar uh, winning actress Sissy Spacek. Yeah, she was the set wait, dresser, wait. and this got her. Wait, 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 one second. Oh, go wait, ahead. we got. We got a donation. I want to read from Jake saying, I'm completely lost. I've never even heard of this movie, but here's towards reaching your goal. Thank you, Jake. Thanks, uh, Wait, that changes my mind about it because I thought that like his career was over after it. You're saying that the Muppet stuff came after this. Yeah, Muppets came after. So if this is 70... Uh, is 74. 74, yeah. Muppets is 79. They were filming easily in 77, 78. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Jim Henson absolutely... Uh, uh, you know, liked Williams. In fact, he comes back and does more Muppet stuff later on. Um, so, one other thing, which is really cool that I thought was just a neat story. So, the guy that plays um, uh, 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 William Finley, yeah. So, the, you know, the scene where the record press, uh, the mm -hmm. record press scene where he gets damaged. So, apparently, they actually stuck his head in a real record press. Oh no! No, then th they said, "Oh, it's going to be fine. It can't hurt you the way we have it set up." They set up safety features that were supposed to be, you know, protective just in case. The safety features broke down, broke. The things that weren't supposed to break broke. Oh, no. And they had to pull him out uh, to oh, see him. No. So, yeah, he actually almost got his head kind of squished in by these record presses. Can I, uh, can I tell you the name of his novel or his uh, memoir, not memoirs, I guess his self-help book that he wrote mm -hmm. about this whole experience? Mm -hmm. It's called, hold on. Fail brilliantly, exploding the myths and failure of success. And I love this concept. I love that he's taken this idea. You know, we all have this idea of like make mistakes and like, you know, those are good things. But the idea of failure is such like a, an ingrained concept of something that's just antithema to the American dream, you know? And this took a while. Like it was years before this was considered a cult classic and that Edgar Wright inspired by it. So he spent all this time thinking he had like fucked up his life. Like that this was it. Like this was the worst thing he ever did. And it, it changed the course of his life. But like, in fact, it, it, something came of it that was so beautiful and it inspired so much other beautiful work. So he writes in it, dealing with these failures requires a complete rethink of the concept of failure. And of course the concept of success, life is failure. Our entire 4 billion journey into the universe is made up of all kinds of trials and errors. Our lives are full of stumbles and unexpected outcomes, which often do not lead to any kind of success. We believe failure falls broadly into three categories, uh, blah, blah. And then it's like, and show how we can separate the concept that causes unnecessary pain by providing revolutionary ways of thinking about failure. And I swear to God, I have not read this book yet, but I am so fucking excited to. Because <laughs> well, I think I, about failure constantly. 
Um, what's something um, to consider that whenever I think about, when I remember people being a little dismissive about safety precautions or stuff going on, being safe in general behind the scenes, I think of, now I'm going to think of this situation, but also I'm going to continue thinking about Bruce Lee. Now it's like Bruce Lee's son, Brandon Lee. Who Brandon Lee. Like, well, that's, that's, there's no upside of what happened there. Um, yeah, no, it's awful. But there's it comes down to safety precautions should always be taken seriously, regardless of how fun <laughs> a certain filming set is. <laughs> Because that sounds really scary. Wait, wait. I'm, am I thinking of the wrong Paul Williams? Sorry, I'm making sure that I don't have the wrong Paul Williams who wrote this book. Uh, I thought I'm, I had the right one. Maybe this, maybe a different Paul Williams wrote this book. I'm pretty sure Paul Williams, the guy from this movie, wrote this book. Maybe I'm crazy. So I just recant that, maybe. Give me a second. Okay, there's uh, a lot of also, there's a whole lot of LOTR puns going on right now. Including this really is an unexpected journey <laughs> how dare you eric how dare you yeah <laughs> um overall we are going to be we are cracking up at an hour now and so we are going to be wrapping up here not so much so much soon but here in the next like 15 minutes so, so if any questions comments or or anything along those lines we just want to know how you like the movie as well please let us know in a super chat um stream lab that'd be much appreciated help keep the lights on here at cinema bias and video drew's channel overall but yeah so something i'm kind of curious from you guys is oh. that is there anything after watching this movie does it inspire you to watch anything else in particular whether it be from this director whether it be another type of musical film or whether it be um you're you have an increasing desire to check out any movie involving these actors <laughs> yes and i also realized where my mistake was because he has a big quote about failure but i'll do that a second uh guillermo de toro movies here's uh -huh. one Besides Edgar Wright, the biggest fan of Phantom of the Paradise was Guillermo del Toro. And if Not you think about it, you, the slightest. you can see that the hands of in Pan's Labyrinth, that it's it's a whole it's a whole aesthetic, it's a whole mood of it. Uh, so apparently, yeah, the one copy he's ever signed during like no one came to any of this the the press events for this movie except for this one 16-year-old kid who made him sign a bunch of records. Turned out to be Guillermo del Toro. Oh my gosh, are you serious? That's nuts. No. Wow. So here's maybe the takeaway. It's not that things can be considered a success. Hold on, let's let this person read it out. Hold on. Killing this guy's yeah. song is one of the greatest songwriters ever. One of his masterpieces. Absolutely one of his masterpieces. So I think fail the way I would think about failure in this terms, because he does have these big quotes about failure. Be careful what you label a failure. I did things in my thirties that like I considered a failure. Mm -hmm. But like, uh, but all of a sudden, you know, like the work I've done with Daft Punk. Oh, I forgot he worked with Daft Punk. Uh, and no, totally Daft like, Punk. Yeah, Daft Punk is the other big one that loved Fan of the Paradise because their outfit. You see, like, you see how things that like seemed like a total flop, like a wash at the time, ended up inspiring so much art and and oh stuff God. that we love right now. They love Daft, Daft Punk. Punk. Oh, I'm finding out about this now. 
I think for me, what I really want to that, that this has kind of inspired me is is to look at more seventies musicals, specifically one seventies musical that I have seen only once and I really okay. didn't like, but I want to look at it more again, and that's The Wiz. Mm -hmm. Ooh, great interesting. There's one that reminds me of this uh, that I watched with Lon. It's not a great movie. It's called uh, The Apple. It's also a rock opera, uh, but it's way crazier. If you did or did not like this movie, the one musical I would highly recommend, you mentioned earlier Fosse. Uh, you haven't seen all the Fosse. Um, all That Jazz is probably the best, uh, most at least it's the most affecting, like effective uh, musical of, of all time. It is uh, a movie uh, that... Bob Fosse wrote, directed, and stars Roy Scheider as a version of Fosse in it. It predicted Fosse's own death by a couple months. Like he just saw it. Like he was like, this is gonna happen. It has one of the most heart-wrenching, beautiful, and like out of control and uh, end performances of all time where they do the Everly Brothers bye-bye love, but on this crazy ass stage of like veins and heart. It's just like his hallucinations and he's, you know, if you ever heard that, uh, you know, it's what Beetlejuice does and what Saul Goodman does in the beginning of Better Call Saul. But if you ever hear somebody go, it's showtime into a mirror, that's from all that jazz. Uh, and it's it's dark, it's weird, it's fantastic, and I highly recommend it. Mm -hmm. Am I hearing that, Drew, you're looking to put musicals on the wheel one day as a category string? I don't think I can because there's just so many of the old ones I don't know. Yeah, you go back where musicals were much heavier and farther oh, back gosh. more. And they love asking about oh those. My favorite. I love them. One of my, uh, most of my, uh, like, if I'm looking back at some of my favorite movies of all time, more than half are like classic musicals. Yeah, I've never seen like Funny Girl or My Fair Lady or like my favorite thing this week though has to be One. the Russian. Ask Hampton. this woman to do My Fair Lady. Ask this woman to do My Fair Lady. Do it. I mean, make me do it. I will say the funniest thing that I saw today. This is this is how we're gonna wrap up, I guess. Is uh, you know, West Side Story. You guys know West Side Story. It's um, it's that thing where it's Romeo and Juliet, but it's. <laughs> kind of racist and uh mm -hmm. it's uh starring a bunch of people and they don't sing their own songs with their own voices but it's fine it has like two prominent twin peaks members well russ tamblin who played the head of the jets tweeted this out today and i loved it <laughs> so oh yeah much. i saw that that was really good <laughs> i i love are, are you are you at all time. excited for the spielberg directed um West yeah let me be clear I'm not a huge West Side Story person, except for the fact that Sondheim wrote the lyrics to it. Like he was like 16 and he was adopted by like Oscar and Hammerstein or whatever. And they were like, here, you can have, the, you can do the lyrics. Uh, but like the story of Romeo and Juliet, inherently uninteresting to me. Uh, and West Side Story is a lot of uh, melodrama. There's some great mm -hmm. songs in it though. I just sort of like Fiddler. It's, I it's, a, it's a much better dance film than it is an, a musical. The, the choreography songs from the story. Is what I well, that's do. the thing when it comes to West Side Story. I definitely agree with you. It's a beautiful movie in terms of like these fantastic dance numbers. Beautiful. I remember watching for the first. I saw the movie for the first time like last last year, and I watched it like ten times since. America this, is one of the best songs. Maybe athleticism of these performers. And also, again, like, don't underestimate the lyrics. In in I want to yeah. live in America, it starts with this. You know, Anita singing this thing, and she goes. Uh, I like that island Manhattan smoke on your pipe and put that in 
because she's not from America, so she doesn't understand the analogy of put that in your pipe and smoke it. She's saying put that, put uh, uh, smoke on your pipe and put that in. And that was like always one of those early and things. I was like, oh, that man writing the lyrics is a genius. Okay. Not only that, it's 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 just a really great movie in terms of it's a very subtle film. There's a lot of weird things that went on behind the scenes, like how they darkened her skin. How they yeah, that's, that's not even like because they they in real life they looked like under the lights and cameras and everything they looked skin white. Her skin. skin they're, they they're, one person of color in that movie. <laughs> there ain't one. It's it's so it's so interesting, but um, also I just love um, in real life. I can't remember her name that played Anita. But she after she actually won her Oscar for that movie. It was like a whole thing that everyone's like, oh my gosh, she's not going to win. And then she ended up winning. And she's was it like, Maria or Anita? Are you saying? No, not a Maria, Anita. Oh shit, I didn't know Anita won. Okay. Yeah, she won. It was like a huge deal. She was like the first, one of the first um, Hispanic, uh, Hispanic, one of the first Mexican actresses to ever be nominated, let alone win. I think she Do you mean Rita Moreno? Yes. Yeah, that's who it is. Um, but it's uh, but she's like mentioned in numerous interviews. Yeah, it's funny that you guys are giving me an award now. I've been great for years. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm, Girl, you know, uh, I'm not looking for the Spielberg one because like as much as the commentary is still hyper relevant today, yeah. I feel like it's going to be incredibly on the nose. And uh, yes, it'll be nice to have people playing, you know, not putting on brown face or whatever. But I just feel like it's going to be a little bit like well, it's the same thing for me that when when uh, when uh, Tim Burton said I'm going to do uh, Sweeney Todd, I went. But that was I want to see because the whole thing is Tim Burton and a musical, a live action musical. I was like, all right, let's see what you got. Spielberg, same thing. You've never done a musical live action. Let's see what you got. Has he not? Wait, he's never done a live action musical why do i feel like he has lots he, of cartoons never directed but produced <laughs> but he's never yeah. directed a live action musical he's also huh. mentioned a handful of times that he took on this movie not because only because it's a pretty iconic movie he, that's actually one of them he took this one movie on because it was something totally outside his wheelhouse something that he would have to it would be very much a learning experience for him and as a director that's in a situation which so few people are he has very few i don't want to say very few learning experiences but he is surprised very rarely when it comes to filmmaking i mean sure he made right. hook hook is kind of a musical it has a musical interlude it was meant to be a musical uh was it? That that was, makes sense. it was meant to be that's why that the little girl song is still in there uh, that yes. was the only thing left over from the musical. Yo, I always thought that was so weird. I was like, why are we stopping to hear this little girl sing? But also, like, the whole, like, hook, hook, where's the hook? And, like, I felt like the whole thing just felt, like, very much musically inclined. Yeah, it was very interesting. If you want a Peter Pan musical, just look to... <laughs> just yeah. look to uh, uh, Joe Wright's Pan. <laughs> Here oh, my God. Do not do that. Do not watch Pan. Don't watch it Pan. Awful. So I feel bad for Hugh Jackman in that. I thought he could do no wrong. So, I like, was wrong. I, I, I think I love everyone involved. I love Joe Wright as a director, but I that movie is I, I think that movie is just swamped with problems, and I actually respect it for what it is. Why? They took a whole bunch of risks, and I respect that, but 
it's not a good movie. If you mean by risk, you mean using the same weird song that everyone wants to use when they want to do an anachronistic song, which is uh, like uh, the Nirvana is like, here we are now. Yep. Like it's Moulin Rouge. It's Night's Tale. It's, it's a Night's Tale, I feel like. Or, Night's Tale uh, probably used yeah. it at one point, too. I would they, yeah, I mean, like. They did We Will Rock You. They use it. They yeah. Aerosmith, but not Nirvana. They love People love using uh, whatever that song is. Here we are now, entertaining us. So unnecessary for that scene. Uh, it's crazy. I don't know what that movie was thinking. They're like, if you're going to reinvent pa Peter Pan, go ahead and reinvent it. I love the idea of reinventing Peter Pan. He's a fucking vampire child. Like, that's what he does. The he best reinvention of Peter Pan by far was done in the, in the uh, first half of Once Upon a Time's third season. The retelling of the uh, Peter Pan story is pretty freaking good. They I do don't something know. nobody I'm, else I'm did. I'm very partial awesome. to Hook. I'm very partial to Jason Isaac's zaddy like vibe in that one that they did in like the early 2000s. Peter Pan, the Peter Pan, yeah. yeah. Yo, Jason Isaac zaddy is The only thing I don't like about that is the lighting. The lighting always felt off to me. Everything else I liked in that movie. I didn't like the the Tinkerbell, but I loved Zaddy. I also love the idea that like Hook is sort of like like he can't live without Peter Pan. Like the idea that Wendy's going to take Peter Pan away from hook is like, it's, it's like a love story almost. Uh, it, it's yeah. almost kind of like, it's, it's a children's version of Batman and Joker. They just can't live without each other. My but like Peter Pan, <laughs> who is a sociopath child who has no feelings for anything. And like, literally will go and be like, I love you, Wendy JK. I love your granddaughter. Like, like no Joker. feeling hook. Who is an adult who understands that like this child is callous and like has no no inner soul anyway <laughs> um okay so what a what was i actually not think about it um drew you said you wanted to watch potentially more musicals is that it yeah i would love to watch more musicals just uh, not like the ones that were with the 20 minute dance interludes because it was boring <laughs> yeah that's a lot and you said you wanted to watch more um, 70s, more indie musicals in particular, right? I want to just watch, I want to go through all the old musicals. Like, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do the Roses Supposes, the Moses, yeah, that thing. I'm going to do Annie Get Your Gun. I'm going to do Hello, Dolly. Ooh. I'm going to do Funny Face. I'm going to do Gene do Kelly. Thoroughly Modern Millie. Please, okay. one point, do Thoroughly Modern Millie. Later, okay, later this month, we are absolutely going to do a my fair lady episode and it, because i that's one of my favorite movies of all time okay. um but Wait, what's the difference between that and lost in yonkers i i don't i never i never heard of that chris as a theater person what's the difference between lost in yonkers because I, I always knew it as lost in yonkers and then someone started talking about my fair lady i was well, like isn't well my, the same my fair lady is actually is actually based on Malian. Yeah, Pygmalion. I know, I know that. But like, what's Lost uh, in Yonkers? Uh, give me half a tick. Uh, it might be the non-musical version of it. I have never heard of this film. Uh, I do know it was a Neil Simon play. I would have to look more into it. I think it's the non-musical version of Hello, Dolly was called Lost in Yonkers. And it's like... Oh, so it's not related to yeah. My Fair Lady. My Fair Lady is Pygmalion. It's the musical version of Pygmalion. No, I know yeah. that. But there's also a play called... 
am I crazy here? Like, there's a play called Lost in Yonkers. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a Neil Simon it's a, play. It won a lot of awards. So yeah. is it not based on? So is it based on? Um, oh, I'm thinking. Oh my god, Dolly? I'm thinking Hello Dolly. I'm so sorry, guys. Okay, this so that's, that's a very different. That's a very different movie. I was like, Lost wait, in Yonkers movie? inspired Hello Dolly, which is oh, not okay, My Fair Lady. Yeah, My Fair Lady's right. The Rain in Spain and Rex Harrington and, uh, yeah. you know, am I just a bet to you? That's you know the essence of my that relating. is on my top three list of roles to play is is uh, uh, Henry Higgins. Oh, I bet you'd be great, at Henry Higgins. You love training people, so that'd be perfect for you. <laughs> I need to start running you through your training sessions like Henry Higgins would. And the rain in Spain. Brian De Palma made only three in this year. No. Uh, Lord, like Andy Serkis played Smeagol how many times in the Lord of the Ring franchise? I, okay, okay, yeah, we're gonna say we're gonna save that for another time though because I love that musical. I love everything about it. And so, so I know obviously I've been here, and, and obviously you cycle when you do My Fair Lady. I, we'll I have beg, you back please. on. Chris, oh yes, for My you know Fair what? Lady. I'm gonna have you back on because this was not. Fair, like you you signed up to like pick a movie and i was like no nah, i want to make you watch this other thing so like, I, you, know, I, you, you know what i will stand here in front of the online world drew you were right it is a good film is it a little different than i expected is it perfect in my brain no but do i end up liking it after talking with you about it yeah I think it's I appreciate it failure. now from what you There's think. very few movies, let's face it, that when we, the more we talk about it, uh, upon first blush, we're like, mm, whatever. But the more we think about it, the more we talk about it, it actually really grows on us. And we start to think about the characters in new ways, in particular the scenes. Like, I didn't care about the... Except for an education. Turned out to be about Nazis. Later. <laughs> um, okay, so, guys, we're going to be wrapping things up here in just a few minutes again. So... I, I want to make one, I wanna make one final statement. I want to make one final statement about this movie mm -hmm. and about what it means. You don't have to like it. You don't think it's perfect. It's not perfect. But what it is in terms of failure and whatever is like the idea that something could be a critical, you know, or box office failure and yet be art and inspire other better art along the way, inspire Daft Punk, inspire all these things. It really makes your like heart sing about all these things in life that you've considered like a failure that you've done. Oh, I did this project and it didn't work out well. You have no idea who, who saw it and who it might inspire. Like you have no idea. Uh, and it just it's just such a uh, rallying cry to continue making art. And that's it. That's it. That's my only thought. Hmm? So, uh, Alex, what are we doing for next week? Guys, it was my choice yeah, for was. next week. And we're going to be diving into a few movies that I watched very recently for the very first time, less than a month ago. And it would have to be, we're going to be doing our third double feature episode um in cinema bias history and we're gonna be covering superman the movie and superman 2 from 1980 so, so it's not a Zack snyder movie right definitely not a Zack snyder movie perfect no. i'm down i'm down to watch I'm it really excited to see you watch these movies not only because you know it's very relevant in terms of schmodown now that superman is its own category obviously but also because 
these movies really recently kind of climbed up into my personal Mount Rushmore of superhero movies very, very quickly. <laughs> no. And I get the love, which makes me dislike Zack Snyder Superman so much more after watching it. <laughs> Alex, are we watching the Donner Cut or the, the Lesser what, Cut? Whatever was available on HBO Max. I don't know okay. what cut it was. Both are available. But if you're going to watch the first one, watch the Lester cut because canonically they go together. What, I, whatever was available on HBO Max. Wait, they're, they're both available, he's saying. They I, I know, but I mean, like, well, say if it's on whatever version I watch on HBO Max. They're both there. The, the only thing I'm going to say about that is it, like, it changes I, I, things. It, it definitely changes things. So okay, wait, which I, one's longer? I didn't, see, longer I didn't see a mention saying if it was a Richard Donner cut or not. Okay. Wait, what was the original version? What was the theatrical version, and what was the like later one? Theatrical was Lester. Okay. Uh, and then there was an out. There was a cry later on, very similar to the Snyderverse, where they said, "Give the Richard Donner cut. Let Richard Donner show his because he got kicked off the film after For filming most of it." Uh, so yeah, uh, but Lester is considered canonically the uh, the sequel to mm -hmm. to. The first movie. Wait, wait, real quick. Not to, and we'll get into this in the episode. Are we talking about Superman, uh, the second one? Because the first one was just Richard Lester, Donner. Right? Or the no, Donner. The first right? one was Donner. So the first one and was then, directed by Richard Donner. The Donner. second one was directed by Lester. Put it right. this way: well, you know how Donner, some movies Lester are filmed back to back or done as a trilogy all together at once? Yes. Donner did the Lester same was, thing, but got right. kicked off midway through working on the second okay. part. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to do that. We'll talk all about it. I have seen one extra clip from the Donner version from number two that I really am excited to talk about. Uh, so, yeah, that's for next week, which has been Cinema Bias. Um, sorry, Alex, do you have something to say? Um, yeah, I'm pretty excited to talk about Superman, the movie, as well as the second one, regardless of which version we end up like officially picking. That's what we're going to be discussing next Tuesday, so definitely stay tuned for that. It's going to be a guaranteed fun time. Oh, should we invite Mark Riley? We should totally invite Mark Riley. Or Mara on. or Dan. Yeah. Yeah, we totally should. We should we should invite somebody on for that. I'm really excited. I've never seen the whole things of these Superman movies, but I love Christopher Reeves. I feel like he's the best. I loved him in uh, Mousetrap. So uh, this is going to be awesome. Thank you guys for joining us. Uh, I've been taking a little bit of a sabbatical, if you, you may or may not notice. I came back just for this, but I will be here next week. Um, uh, Chris, where can we find you when you're not, when you're not on Talk About Musicals with me? Uh, usually hanging out with Drew or Mike Riley in their training sessions through Patreon. Become a Patreon uh, member of Video Drew and you get one of these awesome stickers that I got in the mail today. Wait, really? I got my sticker in the mail today. What's it look like? Sorry. Oh, you haven't seen it? No. I'll pull it out real quick. Because this is the one that... Uh, my wife was like, what did you order? I was like, I didn't order nothing. Let me see, let me see. Because... Oh my god, that's so cool! Patreon makes those. I didn't make those. Yes, that was your. I, I was very happy. Uh, you can also find me on Twitch once I start twitching again through the summer. Uh, single 1984. I do video games, RPG theater, where I'll play an RPG game over a couple of months, uh, and you'll watch it just like a movie, uh, and it's a lot of fun. And also uh, all around the Schmodown community. Sweet, sweet, Alex, my darling, my love, my precious angel. My angel of music, my Christian Daae. Where can no, I find? No, that's you? a different movie. We can't talk about that movie. Sorry, I'm just saying. 
Close enough. <laughs> um, you can find me right here on Twitter at real underscore Alex Mike. You can also find me being part of the call to action podcast where we do a whole bunch of stuff there. I am actually, I recently announced that I'm going to be doing a schmo bait tournament tournament filled with a whole bunch of schmo down rookies. So if that's something you're really excited about, please tweet it. And we really appreciate that. But also please give us a follow over there and check us out where anywhere podcasts are found. Oh yeah. And by the way, we will be working on getting cinema bites up on a podcast. Uh, very shortly because that's something apparently you guys want to hear is our voice. Um, if you guys, if you're getting rookies on, I hope you get Paige on there because she is, she's awesome. Paige and Peggy, two of my favorites. Oh, I, I, that's actually that's a, that's something I'm actively working on. Actually, <laughs> they're the best. They're the best. Um, as for moi, uh, it's it's kind of a weird story right now because I've been dealing with some some health issues and some and some personal stuff, and I hate when people say that. I don't hate it when people say that. I always feel bad when people say that. But like, uh, so my schedule is kind of erratic right now. I do have a Patreon, patreon.com backslash video drew, where we do do study sessions for Schmodown. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, I do the video chronic pop culture quizzes Mondays and Thursdays at 8 PM on this channel. But like right now it's, it's sort of touch and go about whether I can, uh, you know, only for the next couple weeks or so, hopefully maybe the next week or so it might be touch or go. Uh, I also have live in the dark with video drew, which is my, uh, this is my late night kayfabe show. It's sort of like between two ferns meets space ghosts from the world of video drew. It's her late night talk show. We have a lot of fun guests on. Um, and Oh God, see this is how my brain's working right now. Do I do anything else? Oh yeah. Check out, if you have Peacock, check out a show that's on their Rotten Tomatoes channels. It's called Archie Essentials. It's hosted by Mark Ellis. You may know him. Uh, and it's written by yours truly. Uh, I, I've written a bunch of episodes. It's like me and Lon Harris are the two writers of that show. It's the first time I've ever written for TV. Uh, so please check it out and give it a look. Um, otherwise, video drew across all socials, right? Like it's video drew is one word. You guys got that, right? You guys got that. It's one word. You guys apparently, got that. Apparently, uh, everyone but Christian Harloff gets that. So I love how I actually him and Roka because Roka calls me uh, video, which I kind of like. I do like the idea that it's like video is the first and Drew's the bottom, but it's for SEO. It's so, it's so you don't Google the word video. Drew as two words, and you get video of Drew Brees doing something or Drew Barrymore. Um, other than that, guys, thank you all so much for joining us. Thank you everyone who donated. Thank you everyone who showed up, and thank you to Paul Williams. Uh, and Brian De Palma for creating such a weird, beautiful masterpiece that I'm going to go back and watch right now, probably after this episode. Okay. Good night, guys. Night. Bye. Bye.